2: This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santopadre. Our guest this week is a producer, activist, theater director, musician, playwright, screenwriter, Oscar-nominated film director, Oscar-winning actor, and one of the most versatile and admired artists of his generation. You've seen him on TV shows like The Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, The Brink, and Castle Rock. And in films like The Hudsucker Proxy, Tapeheads, Shortcuts, Jacob's Ladder, High Fidelity, Mystic River, War of the Worlds, Dark Waters, and one of the most beloved motion features ever put on celluloid, The Shawshank Redemption. He's also written and directed the critically acclaimed films like Bob Roberts, Dead Man Walking, Cradle Will Rock, and the recent documentary 45 Seconds of Laughter, and has worked with an impressive list of legends and icons, including Clint Eastwood, Steven Spielberg, Walter Matthau, Bruce Springsteen, Martin Scorsese, Paul Newman, and his friend and occasional mentor, Robert Altman. He's also one of the founders and artistic director of the Actors Gang, an experimental theater and nonprofit group that's produced and continues to produce hundreds of plays all over the world and has spawned. The Prison Project, a nationally recognized inmate rehabilitation program currently running in over a dozen California prisons. His newest project is the hilarious and satirical podcast Bobo Supreme, co-starring talent such as Jack Black and our friend Pat Oswald, and currently available on the Patreon platform. Frank and I have such admiration and respect for this man that we decided to wait at least 20 minutes into the interview to ask him about Howard the Duck. Please welcome to the show one of our favorite performers and a man who says, He's still emotionally scarred from the time a priest took him to see Deliverance when he was 10 years old. <laughs> the multi-talented Tim Robbins.
3: Thanks. That's the best introduction I've ever gotten.
1: <laughs> Thank you. We'll cut it together so it makes sense to him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for finding time for us.
2: Now, I agreed to to be patient asking you about Howard the Duck, but I can't wait on the first one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: Oh, man. I was, I don't know. uh, When did Deliverance come out? 72 or something? Oh, yeah,
1: I think 72.
3: Yeah, I was uh, 12, 13 years old. And uh I no it must have been twelve because i i uh was still an altar boy I was still in grade school, and yeah, he took us on a little field trip, uh a bunch of altar boys to Times Square to see deliverance and um I, I, I just you know, at the time, it was weird, uh first of all, it was an r rated movie, and second of all, you know, square like a pig, but uh right, exactly whatever. Maybe he thought the title, maybe he read some kind of intellectual, <laughs> some kind of, uh, you know, literature at the time that was saying that there was a religious theme to this and the movie, I don't know. Or maybe he was just a, an out-and-out out perv, but you know, <laughs> uh, who knows? Not not exactly emotionally scarred by it, but I, but I would say that I, I look back at it with confusion.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, the... The scene of uh, Ned Beatty getting ass-bucked by hillbillies would be uh, scarring for anybody.
3: (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah,
1: but uh, who knows? The title is deceptive to a man of the cloth.
3: Uh, Yeah, I've I've mentioned it before, and uh, I wonder where that priest is now. Yeah.
2: Now, you were born into a showbiz family.
3: Yes, my father was a musician. Uh, uh, he was in a, a folk group called the Highwaymen, who had a lot of success in the early 60s. He made yeah. five albums with them. And uh, then after that, he was an actor, a musical theater. And uh, and um, then he became a composer of 20th century choral music and had his own group in New York City for,
1: for a while. And Gail Robbins, also in the Belafonte Singers.
3: That's right. That's yes. right. And yes. And many years later, I met Harry Belafonte and uh, talked to him about that. And um, my mother was a musician as well. They met, by the way, at in the UCLA marching band. Um, my my mother played the flute, and uh, dad was the uh, drum major, the guy with the funny hat and the twirled the baton and led the band.
2: And what got you interested in becoming an actor? Uh, Probably
3: seeing my father on stage. You know, that was a pretty magical thing. Um, First, as a a musical performer, uh, he used to do this section of the concert called Shaggy Dog Stories. And um, it was a very funny section. And he'd sing these silly songs and the audience would laugh. And I remember as a kid seeing my dad up there making people laugh. And that was pretty intoxicating. You know, when you see that that's a possibility to do in your life, most families, you know, uh, you know, (laughs) you say you want to be an actor and they say, Oh God, no, Uh, you know, that's the end. You need to, you know, what are you going to do to make a living? Uh, With my family, it was always a possibility. There was a big respect for culture and music and art. And, um, and so, you know, as much as I wanted to jump in right away when I was young. Uh, my fa- I wanted to go to performing arts high school in Manhattan, and my father wouldn't let me. Uh, he said, you need to get an education first before you decide what you want to do in your life. And um, he was right. I hated him at the time for it, but he was right. Didn't um, he say there's he, nothing he said, worse
1: than an uneducated actor?
3: Yeah, he said yeah. there's nothing worse than having a conversation <laughs> with an un- uneducated actor. <laughs> because he had had some at that point for himself and yeah.
1: But he was around to see so much of your success.
3: Yes, he was. And, uh, he, he passed about, uh, seven years ago. Um, he and my mom passed 12 days apart. Um, it was one of those. Yeah. One of those beautiful passings. Um, my mom wasn't particularly ill at the time, but, uh, the night before, She passed. uh, We had hired a nurse to be with her and uh, she said, uh, he's here. And the nurse said, no, he's not. And and she said, he most certainly is. And he looks very strong. And she went to bed that night and joined him. Oh, wow. It's quite beautiful.
1: Wow. Yeah, that is beautiful.
3: She had had a dream two nights before that when my sisters were still there where she said that she's, she, you know, because she had been agitated the night before. She woke up in the morning, she says, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And my sister said, well, what what, what what's up? And she said, well, you know, uh, last night I had this dream and I was in my childhood home in Westwood, California, and coming down the street were friends of mine, uh, led by my oldest friend. And uh, it was weird because they were from all different parts of my life. There was my friends when I was a kid and there was my friends from York and there was my friends from the choral society. And, and, uh, it was strange, but they really calmed me and I think everything's going to be fine. And what we realized is it was all the souls that had passed that were coming to tell her, don't worry. It was, wow. it was, there were a lot of incredibly uh, magical moments around that whole thing.
1: How many years were they married to? Uh,
3: Fifty-two years. Fifty-two.
1: So the bond—the bond was was so strong that.
3: Oh yeah, they didn't want to be w- without each other.
1: Yeah, I—I I, yeah. was—I was reading about your dad, and I was reading about uh, roulette records. He was on the infamous roulette records with uh, Morris Levy Gilbert, who we learned all of, <laughs> yes. who we learned all about when they were the uh, the Cumberland Three. But you—I I was thinking that's with, right. Reading about your dad, and I was thinking he worked with Tom Paxson and all these great. Hokies, and I was thinking he must've been a fan of, of Christopher Guest's, a mighty wind. That must've, oh. that must've rung true for him.
3: Oh yeah. And waiting for Guffman, Right,
1: <laughs> Just the world he inhabited.
3: One of the greatest, um, you know, he told me a story when he was, uh, ill, he, I, I went down and uh, to his house and I filmed him and I interviewed him. And <clears throat> he told me this amazing story. Uh, he said, you know, when he was a young man, he'd had four kids pretty quick. And, uh, he was working as a a music teacher in Pomona, California. And they started a little folk group and they started doing gigs and um, they, they, you know, went up to the San Francisco to the hungry eye and they did the Los Angeles folk scene, but he was a little restless and he was living in Pomona. And uh, so he took a trip to New York city to check it out, to check out the folk scene there. And this was like 1960. And he said he was, uh, he told me there was this one evening, that um, he remembered very clearly. And here he was this, you know, no one knew who he was. He hadn't proven himself yet, but uh, Ronnie Gilbert, who was in a group called the Weavers, Mm -hmm. um, befriended him. And she invited him to this uh, concert that was happening. It was a, 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 a living wake for a man named Cisco Houston who was a very good friend of Woody Guthrie's and had served in in the Navy with him. And um, uh, he was dying, but all of his friends wanted to give him a send off. They wanted him in the room so that they could sing to him. And uh, it was, uh, he said, and, and this is one of the only times I saw him cry. He was saying how much it meant to him to be included uh, in that in that company, wow! And to be to be invited into that, and I often think about that because that led to him moving the family to New York City. That led to him having a career in folk music, and I often think about that one moment of kindness that Ronnie Gilbert shared my with my father, that led to everything in my life. Um, and i often you know when when i when i see people that are are new that uh, are interested in this whole wild ride we're on uh, i i often uh, res- give respect to that moment and try to treat people in that way
1: of course so is it, that was and, a turning point yeah
2: yeah what um stories have you heard about Morris levy he sounded like a fascinating guy
1: do you know anything about him? Not much. But no. We had we had the singer Tommy James here on the show, mm-hmm. doing deep research about your dad, the Cumberland Three Run Roulette Records, and they and, the, and it was owned by by Morris Levy. I urge you to read up on him. Okay. It was a he was a gangster, <laughs>
3: uh, as a lot of people in the music industry were. at the Yes. Time.
1: Tommy wrote a great book about his his life, uh, tr- basically trying to get out of of uh, of servitude uh, to, to the mob and to that record label. So yeah. You I'm, know, I'm sure your dad must have had some, some tales to tell as well.
3: Well, um, yeah, uh, he shared a couple with me. Uh, he, he, he actually helped run the gaslight on McDougal street for mm-hmm. a while. And, uh, there, with, uh, with a guy named Sam hood. Uh, and there, there, yeah, there was a, there was a presence there, you know, that was an interesting environment. I'll bet. Be yeah. Um, but there was a. They were in every business. I mean, in in my neighborhood, um, I grew up. You know, on the on the uh, edge of Little Italy and mm-hmm. Greenwich Village. And um, you know, if you if, if if you wanted your garbage collected, if you want, you know, anything, you know, it, you had to you had to give a little donation to the local don.
1: i'm not not sure it's changed all that much
3: probably not we had a guy that lived across the street from us named happy happy was the local don i see and happy had these two roly-poly kids that had private school uniforms on all the time and you know it was they they were like if you were living in you know a street kid at the time they were like tar you know that's an obvious target to for like kind of like hey let's you know pick on them but no one messed with Happy kids. No, no one. You, know, you, just, you just knew. Do not mess with Happy kids. There will be a, a price to pay.
1: Did, did, did Alan Arkin cross paths with your dad? Because he was a folky. He was in the Terriers.
3: I think he did. And I actually crossed paths with Alan Arkin.
1: Yeah. He must have known your dad.
3: Uh, I, was, I almost did a movie with him. It was really interesting because it was... <clears throat> right before the player actually. And, uh, I, I, Robert Altman had told me he wants, he wanted me to do the player and, uh, I, I it wasn't coming together. The money wasn't coming together and I was broke and I had, uh, you know, just had my first kid and I, you know, I needed to work. And so there was this movie I don't know the name of it, but there, there was this movie, it was a comedy and it was, you know, it wasn't that good, but it was like a million dollars to do it. Right. And I, and so we, me and Alan Arkin are flying out to LA from New York in the same plane and I'm sitting next to him and he, he is also going out for the same reason to, you know, to meet with these people. Mm-hmm. And he goes to me, he says, why the fuck do you want to do this movie? And I was like, well, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of, he says, this, it's not funny. It's not funny. And I said, I know, I know, I know. He said, you shouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so grateful for that because it gave me the strength to say no. <laughs> and uh, the player came together uh, like right. a month the, later. The rest is and, history. No. And
2: what was the movie? Do you
3: remember? Uh, uh, Yeah, I don't like the trash old kind of you know
1: things. All right, we'll we'll make our listeners work for it. (laughs) (laughs) Who who else did you see in the club? I know you you hung out there, even though you were underage. You you spent time in the gaslight.
3: Yes, I did, but you know it it was it was it didn't sell. They didn't serve alcohol there. Oh, okay. Uh, So it was you know it wasn't illegal for me to be there. Um, I saw uh, Livingston Taylor. I saw Cat Stevens. Wow. I saw Sunny Terry and Brownie McGee. I saw Eric Anderson. I saw uh, John Hammond. Um, I saw some really cool uh, blues artists.
1: Because everybody uh, played. I mean, Hendrix played that room. Yeah, everybody yeah. played. Allen Ginsberg, and one then
3: point. there was this comedian named Uncle Dirty that played.
2: Yes, that. yes,
3: <laughs> yes. You remember? You know that guy, right?
2: Yes. Robert Robert Altman, I think, it was is also his name.
3: Really, Bob Altman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Bob Altman know that. was Uncle yeah. Dirty. Yeah,
2: yeah I, yeah, I, I knew Uncle. Me Dirty. and my
3: sister thought he was the funniest thing on earth, right? And um, yeah, uh, we we, and then I snuck in one night uh, for um, the Gaslight moved uh, to 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 Bleecker Street. Uh, it was called the Gaslight a Go Go. And my dad was helping run that place, and um, I snuck in and saw Richard Pryor. Wow! One night, and my father caught me and threw me out. <laughs> he was like, "Nope, nope, nope." You know, I'm a, you know, you know, I'm an altar boy. You know, I'm watching Richard Pryor when I'm like, like eleven years old or something. <laughs> it's like, I thought it was so funny. I loved him. Yeah, I,
2: yeah. I remember uh, Uncle Dirty used to hang out at the Improv uh-huh. in
4: New York. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think I, his name I, was Bob I, I never Olman was there. But. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. That sounds yeah. right. That sounds right. You know, we jump around like crazy, Tim, but since you're bringing up iconic comedians, uh, j- just tell us a little bit about your encounters with, with Rickles, who's somebody we love to talk about on this show.
3: Oh wow, he was so funny. Um, I, I ran into him at a, a Oscar party uh, at Danny Jansen's place, and got to know him a little bit after that. Yeah, um, uh, I, I just loved him. I, 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 you know, it's the kind of person that you, you know, you've watched your entire life. You, you, you've laughed so many times, and then he 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 becomes that in front of you. But he's, and and you realize he's giving you this beautiful gift of like, he's gonna rib you. He's gonna like bust your chops for free, you know?
4: (laughs) It's all just
3: personal. It's just like just you and him. He's not, it's not for an audience. He's just gonna bust your chops right there. (laughs) I felt so honored. I felt like I just entered into a new club or something. Just, you know, the, personal beration of of Don Rickles.
1: (laughs) And yet everybody we talked to that knew him or that was, you know, we just had Bob Costas here a couple of weeks ago and, and he got to know Rickles. I mean, everybody says there was, of course, he was facetiously called Mr. Warmth, but everybody said there was a genuine warmth and, and, and likability with the guy.
3: For sure. I loved him. I loved him. Yeah. And I, you know, that, um, old Hollywood, um, I ran into quite a few of those people as I was coming up, and
1: mm-hmm.
3: another person I, I loved was Jerry Weintraub. Uh, you know, he oh legend. You know, he was just just the best guy. You know, um, and uh, you know it was so sad when he died. You know, he 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 produced The Brink, uh, this HBO show I did, and uh, he he had uh, he was very. Um, It was incredible at telling stories uh, about his life, but never from braggadocio. It was always like telling the story about how he told Frank Sinatra that before he did his Madison Square Garden concert, he says, "You can't do seven ballads in a row.
4: (laughs) It's never gonna work. (laughs) It's never gonna work, Frank. Seven ballads in a row." And he says, "You know what, Timmy? It it was the highlight of the concert."
1: Wow, we feel we missed out by not having Jerry Weintraub on this show, because we we love the old showbiz stories, and he was just a great Uh, raconteur.
3: A lovely guy, a lovely guy, and I got to know him very well, and, uh, you know, I think the last time I talked to him, it was, you know, he was just, you know, he was in a funk, and he, uh, for some reason, he called me, and just, you know... Tried to make him laugh a few
1: yeah. times. I like The Brink. By the way, I I, I read something that that after, after Jerry's passing, that that had something to do with HBO not bringing it back. I think it did. Yeah, I think which it is did. unfortunate. It was a very good show.
3: Yeah, we were about to do Russia. Yeah, it would have been great. Smart it would show. Have been awesome. People
1: can find it still. Our friend Michael Lehman directed a bunch of them as as well. And and you,
2: and you worked with someone that whose name has popped up on this show a number of times, and that's Lou Jacoby.
1: Oh mm-hmm. all those great character actors you worked with on IQ. And Walter, you that same movie, yeah. Yeah, Walter, yeah. Gene, Gene uh, Sachs. Musician.
3: Yeah. Well, I love Walter love Lou. but it was you know, it, it, I always I you know when I was uh, uh before I started working as an actor, my uh, one of the jobs I had was I was a waiter at the Hillcrest Country Club.
2: Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah.
3: So I um So I had uh, encountered all these people I used to see on the Johnny Carson show, you know, the tonight show uh, and served like Steve Lawrence and Edie, uh, Steve and Edie, uh, uh, Edie Gourmet. And, and and I think Rickles was in there a few times. And I reminded him of that when I met him and uh, you know, um, uh, George Burns was a regular almost every day. And uh, so I, I had, encountered this kind of the old classic showbiz guys who I have great admiration for. You know, they kind of laid the groundwork for comedy. Uh, And as much as I had at the time, because I was a punk rocker at the time, Mm -hmm. as much as I had like a certain contempt for the new Hollywood and the kind of stupid sitcoms and shit. Those guys, I just, I, I just had such respect for the, you know, the, the, the ones that were in the trenches that that made uh, American comedy, you know, um, that created this uh, great, great uh, future for all of us, and yeah. Uh, you know, I never got to meet Carson. I would have never, have met, have never met, met Carson. Him.
2: Did yeah. did you meet Groucho or Jack Benny? I. Uh,
3: I think Groucho. W- w- no. When did Groucho die?
1: Seventy-seven. I, I
2: don't
3: know. I, I seem to have a memory of one. I think it was that I wasn't there and he was there, or something that he had been in. Because I was a huge fan of his and and the Marx Brothers, and yeah. Oh, uh, we like you
1: even more now, Tim.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is like, <laughs> <laughs> I, here I am, like you know, this kid just out of UCLA, and I'm seeing all these legends and. Wondering whether they want brisket or, uh, you know, the, or the fish. You, know? Do you want the fish or the brisket? You know.
2: <laughs> oh, you were You also work with Robin Williams.
3: I loved him. I loved him. He was, he was a good friend and a, uh, uh, um, just a. Uh, I, I'm so sad about that. Still, it just you know, I'm sad and pissed off and. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I was blessed to have him in my life uh, and in all of his beautiful, chaotic genius um, to be able to share moments with him and, you know, being, you know, our families went on vacation a couple of times together. And uh, when I first worked with him, I had just had my first son, Jack, and uh, it was Cadillac man. And I remember being super nervous because You know, the first day of shooting, you know, you know, Robin, he's, you know, there's the script and then there's Robin, right? So (laughs) Robin just started improvising and I just started going along with him. Right. And I, it it was, it was so, uh, it was such a breakthrough for me because, you know, at that point I pretty much stayed to the script and, you know, young actor, I'm not going to, I would make suggestions about certain lines and everything, but I wouldn't go completely into left field and Robin just opened the door and he said, go, go there, come with me, jump on the train. We're going to, you know, take this into some weird fucking place. And, and, and I, I went along for the ride and I was so, uh, so happy to know that I, I, I could do it. You know, it was, that was like a, it was like a huge gift from him to, you know, to, to be able to invite me along on that improvisational journey. And, uh, God, you know, I know you knew him too, Gilbert. And what a, you know, what a loss that was, man. That was just, just, uh, I miss him, miss him a lot.
2: Yeah. I mean, a a few times uh, he would come into the clubs, drop in the clubs a lot. And, and a couple of times he would, he invited me when he was on stage. He'd invite me to come up and just play. And always, it was like exhausting and exhilarating at the same time.
4: But- yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, I guess one of the, you know, to be able to make Robin Williams laugh, that that was a, <laughs> a great joy. <laughs> oh, man.
2: And, and also you worked uh, with Paul Newman.
3: I did, I did.
2: You're just, about just, it. I mean, you're just
3: gonna make me cry. Is that what, is that what this is about? Is a dream gonna, come true.
1: You, you, gonna, you called that.
3: <laughs> it was a dream come true. Uh, and um, you know, I had. Uh, he was one of my uh, heroes growing up. You know, um, not only was he a great actor, uh, uh, but also a committed uh, individual that was unafraid of expressing his opinion and standing on the side of uh, marginalized people. And oh yeah, uh, you know, and starting that um, Newman's own, uh, that was, uh, purely for the, every profit, every dollar profit went to charities. Uh, and he was just a, a beautiful man. Um, so was his wife, jo- Joanne, Woodward. And, and, you know, I, uh, I, I was doing a sh- uh, um, movie called Hutsucker Proxy with him. And it was, we were, uh, going after work one day said, yeah, let's go get a six pack. And um, I got in the car with him, and man, oh man, he would—he was nuts behind the wheel. I mean, he he drove so <laughs> fast. I'm sitting in the, the, you know, the I'm sitting shotgun, and I'm thinking, okay, well, not a bad. Way to die, you know, uh, with Paul Newman. That would be all right, you know. You might get second billing Paul in the story, Newman.
1: though. <laughs> That's true. Might have gotten the
3: second <laughs> billing, but I would, I would have taken it for Paul. Loved of him. course. Um, <laughs> he had that wild glint in his eye, that That's mischievous hilarious. kind of like uh, I'm gonna, you know, let's fuck shit up kind of thing. Um, very young in, in a lot of ways uh, in his spirit, and. Um, he uh he w- uh, supported my theater company the actors gang with generous donations every year came to see my play embedded in at the public theater in new york and took us out to dinner afterwards and just was a you know a, a real good a real good man he
1: did so you know. much for so many people and and used yeah. used his celebrity as you said to 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 uh, better people's lives
3: but he was also a mischievous person too uh-huh. you know he was very famous for his practical jokes mm-hmm. um altman uh told me about a couple of his practical jokes and i think it was buffalo Belly, they that together and, oh yeah yeah you know he would always uh, pull things on redford you know that was that was the <laughs> 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 you know he'd always find a way like to fill up his trailer his movie trailer you know that he was his motorhome with, uh, I forgot what it was, popcorn maybe. And, you know, so that <laughs> he opened his door and this like ton of popcorn came. I forgot what exactly he filled it up with, but he was always doing stuff like that, which is, you know, this kind of like mischievous elf. He didn't. He had that look in his eyes all the time. He's like, he wanted to have fun and he wanted to, you know, in his own way, um, uh, create a, 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 a nice environment for people to work in.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. And you did an episode of The Love Boat. I did. Yeah.
3: Yes. <laughs> 1984, I was on The Love Boat in a flashback. Oh.
4: <laughs> flashback.
3: I was, I was the young George Kennedy
2: Oh, and
3: uh, wow, the woman that. I was working with was the young Cloris Leachman. <laughs> and uh, they were recalling they were on this romantic adventure in Copenhagen, and uh, they there, there was a flashback to Nazi uh, occupied uh, uh, um, Copenhagen, and I played a uh, young resistance fighter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Listen, George I got Kennedy. I got I got letters here from people who remember you on that show, Tim. Well, thank goodness and, someone
2: <laughs> And and that. we had bo- on this podcast we've had both Gavin McLeod and Bernie Capel. Yeah,
1: we've done we've we've covered the Love Boat.
3: <laughs> I just want to I just want to ask- work with Hervé Villachez by the way I'm Oh! Just
2: gonna- I, the, I, oh, I, uh, yeah. the best us. <laughs> I
3: I think it was in tape heads. I think he was in tape heads. I think he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got a I've got a collection of photos of of me and all these people. <laughs> I just a couple
1: of, a, a, a couple other things about Hudsucker. I mean, that is a movie. You're a, you're a, you're also like us, a movie buff. And I've heard you talking about the glory days of the '70s when when the inmates were running the asylum. Yes, the, the Hudsucker Proxy is a movie for people who love movies. It's a it's it's pure cinema. I, I'll There's say so a, a controversial thing
3: it. here. I think it might be one of the Coen Brothers' best movies. I
1: agree. I agree wholeheartedly.
3: I, <clears> I think it's a, a a gem to discover. Anyone that hasn't seen it out there in in podcast land, uh, check it out. It's a delightful movie.
0: Well, the Hindus say, and the beatniks also, that in our next life, some of us will come back as ants. Some will be butterflies, others will be elephants or creatures of the sea. What a beautiful thought. Say, what do you think you were in a previous life, Amy? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I was just a fast-talking career gal who was one of the boys. Oh, no, Amy. Pardon me for saying so, but I find that very far-fetched. No, the that really kind of person would come back as a wildebeest you know. or a warthog. No, I find it more likely that you were a gazelle with long, graceful legs gambling through the underbrush. Perhaps we met once, a chance encounter in a forest glade. I must have been an antelope or an ibex. What times we must have had foraging together for sustenance. Snorfling water from a mountain stream, picking the grubs and burrs from one another's coats. Or perhaps we simply touched horns briefly and went our separate ways. Oh, wish it were that simple, Norville. I wish I was still a gazelle and you were an antelope.
1: And it's fun to watch you doing physical comedy, to watch you doing slapstick.
3: Oh, it's so goofy! Uh, As that, well. guy
1: so, <laughs> that guy is
3: such a rube, Nor, Norville Barnes. How
1: did you? How did you like Durning? Another actor we love. Yeah.
3: Loved him. Loved him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I uh, he, yeah. Uh, that was a, a really interesting shoot. Um, it was in North Carolina, uh, and uh, it, we were shooting next to uh, the Crow. In the same uh, wow. studio, and you know it's such a tragedy what happened to that kid Brandon Lee. And, oh yeah, um, it was you know there was they were working it too hard, man. They were they were working long long hours and shit, there was already a lot of accidents on the set, and, and I remember there was a you know just like Jesus, what else can go wrong kind of thing and then that happened. It was, it was, it was so awful. Um, but the, you know, the experience of making the movie was, uh, you know, just, just a a great, a great time. Uh, other, other than the fact that that happened late in the shoot, but for the most of the shoot, it was, um, it was quite great. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee and, uh, Paul Newman and great
1: performances. Yeah,
3: amazing performances. This, it, it, I'm a huge fan of uh screwball comedies from the yeah. 30s and 40s. Yeah. That you know, that quick paced, uh, smart talking career woman kind of you know.
1: Sure. Yeah, well, she's she, doing that Rosalind Russell Hepburn thing throughout. Yeah, so good. Yeah, it's
3: so good. And yeah. um, <clears throat>
1: uh, you know, I, I
3: just I just recently watched one of my rewatched one of my favorite movies, uh, My Man Godfrey. It's great. Which, um, just and I was so it was so great to watch it with my son who had never seen it, you know, and just like I know all the good stuff that's coming. I, I, as a matter of fact, I, I kind of uh, created a character in Incredible Rock that's an homage to to Carlo the the guy <laughs> the the uh, the. Um, uh, what is the protege of, uh, of the rich woman, oh,
1: the Giamatti character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's great.
3: Yeah. <laughs> right. in, in my man Godfrey, that guy's like acting like a monkey to make the girl laugh. That's right. She's crying and climbing up the you know, curtains and doing all these dramatic poses. it's just so funny and over the top, but all also all those movies and the Capra movies and uh, the Sturgis movies—they all were talking to their times too. They weren't just—it wasn't just mindless comedy. There were there was real social import in those movies. They oh, were, certainly in a movie like *My Man Godfrey*, a, a, they were talking to a, a generation that was kind of traumatized by the Great Depression, and they they were addressing what was happening. And as you remember in *My Man Godfrey*, yep. when it all starts with a, 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 a the this like treasure hunt for a forgotten man, a homeless person. That these rich people are having this big party, and they want to find a homeless person sure. so that they can get a prize. Right. And William Powell is the homeless person, <clears throat> and winds up being hired as the butler in in the estate of this very rich family. But it's it, you know uh, all those movies really had an effect on me growing up. Well, I,
1: you I, look at the social conscience of something like Sullivan's Travels, yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, or Mister Smith goes to or Mister Smith, or
2: yeah,
3: it's a wonderful life or yeah, all, it's yeah.
1: Somebody told me that you get teary-eyed watching "It's a Wonderful Life."
3: I do every time.
1: Yeah. yeah. Is it? Can I ask? Is it the same part where my wife and I cry? When, Which part is? When that? the brother, when the brother says a toast to my big brother, the richest man in town. That's
3: a good moment. That's a <laughs> good moment. But I think the moment that gets me all the time is when he realizes that that he, his his life had value, and he's running down the street and he's saying, right, it's great." You know, Hello uh, Bedford Oh
1: Bedford? you won't building alone yeah. yeah
3: Yeah Yeah Hello uh, what
1: was that town called Bedford Falls Bedford or, Falls Yeah
3: Yeah, yeah. Um yeah. I I watched that recently again and just a great just a great movie
1: I love that the Hudsocker proxy and those guys and the Coens that they have such affection for those films and yes. and and that movie is just and whether you've seen Sturgis and Capra or you haven't I mean that that it's a special piece of work. It's an original piece of work.
3: It sure is. I, I wish more people would see it. And, and you know, the hardest day of work I ever had, the most challenging day of work I ever had as an actor was on that film, which is when I had to do uh, two and a half pages of a monologue while hula hooping. Uh, <laughs> in thing, one shot. In one, in one shot. No cutaways. And that was what they wow. told me. It told me we're not cutting away from this shot. Wow. And they got me a hula hoop trainer in, in in like weeks and weeks before we started shooting. They said this you have to you have to nail this. And I couldn't do it. I it was it was so hard. Because I just I guess I don't have the hips for it. But, <laughs> but. the dingus. <laughs> we figured out a way to add a little more weight to the hula hoop, and then it became a little easier. But still, I, uh, up until the day I was practicing every day, hula hooping, and I just wasn't getting it. And then somehow it clicked on the day we shot. So thank you. Let,
1: let, since you brought up Cradle Will Rock, and I, I, I want to ask about it, um, and we're talking about movies with a with a a, a message, or movies with a with a that are you know about the times. Um, and I heard you say you got terrified when you were directing for the first time. And I'm looking at Cradle Will Rock with Bob Roberts, which was a much smaller movie. I'm looking at Cradle Will Rock the other night and it looks like it's a massive production.
3: Yeah, it was massive. With a, uh, not a massive budget, which is always challenging. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was a, um, I love that movie. Um, I love doing it. Uh, um, I'm proud of that movie. I think As it will have be. another life uh, yep. because I think it's more relevant now than when we made it. Um, and it was a tapestry. It was, it was, it was my homage to Altman. You know, that his mm-hmm. he was probably the most influential filmmaker I ever saw. Uh when I was in high school, I saw Nashville, and that uh opened my eyes to the idea that uh film can can be a tapestry. It it can tell several different stories at the same time. And um and so th- when it uh when it came out, uh, it, we, we we premiered it in Cannes, and it got the, a five minute standing ovation.
1: Oh, that must have been gratifying.
3: And it was, yeah, it was so great. But then the next morning, we realized we we're in trouble because there were some critics that really uh, didn't like it or didn't trust it's what it was saying or something or. And then, and we had all these pre um, <clears throat> you know when you do screenings in New York City before you go to can, you invite all these entertainment uh, writers and critics and they give you like one line blurbs about what they thought or two you know three two or three lines. And everyone, everyone that saw that movie loved it. And we were getting these, you know we were getting these incredible reviews for it. and then something happened in can. And when it came out later that year, the same people that had written these great reviews had turned on it, and so it was very strange. it got great reviews uh and it we we were set for uh you know award consideration all mm. that stuff. but then what happened was it got made because of a man named Joe Roth who was running Disney at the time and Joe had seen Dead Men walking and said to me it was the best second film he's ever seen from a filmmaker Wow, and so it was one of those situations where I was able to walk into an office after the guy had read the script and he says, "How huh, you know, what do you need? You know? <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Okay. It's, it, you know, he greenlit it. One man greenlit that film. And um,
1: it could happen that way in those days. It could it ha- happen
3: that way in those yeah. days. And yeah. Joe had the power to do it. And I'm forever indebted to him for, for giving me the keys to that car. But uh, he left the job uh, about three months before the movie came out. And I guess the new people that were running it didn't like it. So it was released um, in 100 theaters, which, which was a contractual obligation, but with zero advertisement. I actually had my office check on opening day. Wow. And there weren't any advertisements for it. They dropped it the ball. Th- yeah, they, they, they dumped
1: it. It's such a good movie with so many outstanding performances. Vanessa Redgrave is great and Philip Baker Hall is great and Bill a, a different kind of part for Bill Murray. Bill Murray's
3: it's, genius. It's so in much in going, that. going on he, in that. He movie. plays a, a Ventriloquist, yeah. uh, Jack Black and Kyle Gass at Tenacious D play his, uh, you know, the people he has to tutor reluctantly. Um, I, <laughs> uh, John Turturro's Turturro is genius in that movie. Emily Watson.
1: Yeah, uh, everybody
3: yeah, uh, and uh, something, uh, but something uh, happened with it. it was I've never really gotten to the bottom of it. If there's any, uh, in, you know, in, industrious writers out there that want to figure it out, but it was not even released in Australia, an English-speaking country. With make all any that.
1: sense? We'll try. We'll try to run some intel. I, 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 I will. It's also one of those films that makes you want to open the history books and read about the period. And I read about Rockefeller and Rivera and the and the mural. And, and just absolutely fascinating. And I and I, you know, I learned about. I knew Huac had done some terrible things, but I didn't know how how quickly they shut down that program.
3: Yes, and the and the central was- story is about a, a, a production of a, a play called Cradle Will Rock. Yeah, Mark Blitzstein. was uh, sh- uh, was shut down by the federal government. Uh, they locked the theater from outside. And the, it's an infamous night. Uh, they, the Orson Welles, who was the director of the play, and John Hausman mm-hmm.
0: uh,
3: found another theater, and they kept going out in front of the, the theater to tell the audience that was assembling that they that the play would go on. They were just looking for a theater, and they find a theater. <clears throat> they march a thousand people up town, twenty blocks, in this kind of wild parade. <clears throat> but unfortunately, Actors' Equity, the union, but by the way, this is a pro-union musical written yes. by Mark Blitzstein. The union, Actors' Equity, tells them they can't perform it because it's not the original producer. So their union has forbidden their actors from performing this play. So now all the actors are assembled in the audience to watch Mark Blitzstein, the composer, perform all of the parts of the of the musical. He starts into the first song. He sings the first song. And then he starts, this, this part, the first character enters and he's narrating it. And the woman, Olive Stanton, played by Emily Watson, stands up in the audience and starts to sing her part from the audience. And then the subsequent entrances of the actors are all scattered throughout the audience. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the musicians showed up and they it was this amazing moment because, because it was artists saying, you know what? We're not actually on the stage, so we're not breaking the actor's equity rule. We're performing from the audience, so we can do that, right? And it became this uh, legendary night in, in theater and a legendary moment for, you know, the, the idea of, of freedom and, yeah. and freedom of speech. And Olive Stanton, for me, was the hero of, of that story.
1: The Emily Watson character. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, well, it's, an important histor- it's an important moment in history to have put on film. When you risk everything to speak
3: your truth, that was that moment. When you. she was risking her uh, standing in Actors equity, she was r- risking her entire career. And by the way, she was risking her safety because there were cops all around. And uh, a week before that, there had been um, some murders in in a, in a strike. And so the audience was well aware of this. But when we filmed it, um, didn't tell the audience anything. We just told them the backstory, uh, the extras that were there, which said, they, you know, there was this going to be this play. You've just marched uptown. Uh, you're all assembled. There's a, a little tension because there, there has been some violence lately. There, it's, it, it, but uh, you're going to watch just one person, Hank Azaria, playing Mark Blitz. And he's going to perform the entire play for you. So they didn't know any of the actors were going to stand up. And we shot first in the direction of the audience. And holy cow, the audience was, it was just such a great night. It That's was great because they were experiencing what that audience back in 1937 was experiencing.
1: And obviously that, that audience in Cannes felt it, felt that. Yeah. And it was, it was, they, uh,
3: they, they we had, uh, we had, we had about, uh, 15 hours of glory on that film. <laughs> it's. A
1: ter- I'm going to, we got a, we got a pretty good listenership on this show. I'm going to urge our listeners to, if you have not seen Cradle Will Rock, please see it. It's it's an important movie, and it'll make you interested in in that era, and it's you know another movie about politics fucking up a, a, a basically good idea, <laughs> a noble <laughs> by the, idea.
3: By the way, an era <laughs> that we might be re-entering soon. Yes, if let's the hope the economy not. doesn't turn around. Yeah.
1: Let's hope not. Which is the perfect su- segue into Bobo Supreme. Yes. Your oral a u r a l cinema. Yes. Theater of I, the Mind we like to call it here. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I had I had originally intended it as a film um I, had, I was about to go out with Adam McKay producing as to find financing and uh, then COVID hit and uh it was clear that nothing was going to get filmed and I wouldn't be able to film it by the time that the election rolled around. So mm-hmm. I got to work on adapting it to uh, an oral entertainment. Uh, I wanted to create a kind of soundscape of um, uh, you know that that filled your filled the listeners' imagination up with so much, so many sound effects and so much movement and music and weird characters, so that they could imagine what it looked like. I hope that is what we've done. It, Absolutely,
1: it, and you mentioned screwball comedies. The pace of screwball comedies—it certainly moves that fast. It has to. Yeah, it has it's to. It's great.
3: Yeah, it was it was uh, it was very challenging to do too because you know uh, everyone was in isolation. You know, I was going to
1: ask how'd you pull that off. I
3: I bought a bunch of microphones and I sent them. Well, and then I sent the script to uh, some actors who I'd worked with, who some some of whom are are good friends, some of them whom I I just recently met, and um, I asked them if they would participate. And every one of them said yes. And uh, so I sent them microphones and we were feeding into one engineer. Uh, At the time we recorded, I think there were 25 actors and we eventually used about 35 actors. Uh, We had done a Zoom uh, rehearsal uh, and so we could see each other's face. But when we recorded it, we had to eliminate the the film aspect of it, be, the uh, visual aspect because it, of the sound quality. So what wound up happening was we were doing this fast paced comedy uh, without it was it was really, you know, you had to concentrate on 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 how this how it sounded. And it was such a good challenge. Some people were, you know, locked in their closets because that was where the best signal was, oh, and they was wow. the most quiet. Uh, Carrie Kinney uh, and Tom Lennon are in it. Carrie Kinney was um, was uh, uh, saying um, that she she put a sign on her door saying "Do Not Disturb," and she said I felt like I was like a twelve year old again, saying, "Mom, leave me alone. I'm I'm recording something. Don't bother wow. me. Don't knock on the door." It's
1: like wop groups uh, recording in bathrooms. Yeah, for the sound.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And those, you know, this is the other thing. Every room had to sound different. You know, there's a bathroom in Babo. There's a, there's a White House. He's tricked out the White House in all these different uh, entertainment kind of studio fact fact ways. You know, he's, he's got a, a Rose Garden morning show. He's got uh, an afternoon game show he does yeah. called losers suck. <laughs> he's got his science and cool stuff room. It's great. He's got uh, a strip club. He's got a, uh, um, an, a recording studio. There's, you know, uh, he's a recording artist slash president. Um, uh, and so it was, it was, it had to have this sense of movement, constant movement this, this, this narcissistic president,
1: narcoleptic, and narcissistic narcoleptic, game yes. show host and a game yeah. show host. Yeah. yeah it's great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, wanted to get the idea that he just was in constant motion; that he uh, had a attention span a, a, about the length of a two year old, and and needed to yeah. constantly be moving.
1: It, you know, yeah, I heard uh, I heard comparisons made. We were talking about Orson Welles a minute ago. I heard comparisons made to to Mercury Theater. Gilbert, you'd you'd love this because it's it it is old radio, essentially. It, it, it in a, in a way, it's very cinematic but it, but it is like old time radio.
3: You know, when I, I, I just recently took a trip across country. Uh, I, you know, I didn't want to, I, I stayed, uh, you know, I, I camped out and, uh, cooked out, you know, I didn't want to stay in any hotels, but I had a Sirius XM and I, uh, there's this old radio classic channel. And I listened to a lot of those old radio shows.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it's, it was you know, they that was a, a great art form, like Inner uh, Sanctum and those kind of shows pre television, yeah, yeah,
3: and amazing, amazing uh work with sound effects. But Mercury Theater was so genius because yes. they took it to another level, uh, they created a, a, a real verite in the work that they did. That's why War of the Worlds freaked everyone out. It sounded like it was actually happening, and and not only that, but Mercury Theater was also attuned to. Doing material that was reflecting people's anxieties at the time, and at, at the time there was a, a, a the fascism was growing in Europe, and mm-hmm. and the idea of an invasion was not uh, something that was impossible. So it kind of tapped into this collective anxiety, created a panic. And my favorite is is there's film of, of Orson Welles being asked about and, and the, you know the look on his face saying. We had no idea. Of course, he did. <laughs> <laughs>
4: like,
3: of course you did. That was the whole Nintendo. He was such a pr- he was like, uh, I I look at or, that that young that Orson Wells as a punk rocker. He he just he
1: wow. That's an interesting he, analogy.
3: He was a, a rebel, a yeah. total rebel. You know he um you know uh, had a <clears throat> with his uh, project eight ninety one. Uh, with, with the with the Federal Theater Project, he ha, he was uh, had integrated casts, which was not done at the time. He mm-hmm. either had an all African American cast, you had all white cast. He was integrating. He was doing controversial material, and by the time he got around to doing uh, Citizen Kane, I don't know if you know this story, but do you know what do you, do you know what Rosebud is? Oh, oh yes,
1: Gilbert yes. knows.
2: Yes, uh, <laughs> his is. Um, Hirsch's girlfriend's vagina.
1: Marion Davies. Yes, Marion yes. Davies.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I heard was it was his pet nickname for her clitoris.
2: Yes.
1: Um, that's, the, that's the rumor. You're 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 a, you're a little low, Gilbert. You gotta go a little higher.
2: Yeah. <laughs> a story of my life.
1: <laughs> it's like real estate, Gilbert. Location is everything.
3: Can you imagine the screening room? where William Randolph Hearst...
1: Oh, I can imagine.
3: ...is sitting in the dark, and the beginning of the movie opens, and there's this big close-up of these lips saying, Rosebud. <laughs> 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 what? How yeah. apoplectic he must have become. Oh, my God. It's the,
1: it's the greatest How does he fuck.
3: fucking know? Yeah. How, what <laughs> the fuck? And, and throughout the movie, <laughs> the question is, what is Rosebud? That's right. What is Rosebud? That's the big mystery. Right. And I can just imagine Hearst sweating it out. You know, when that movie opened it, 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 you know, they, I, it, it had a big challenge because it had some big enemies and, um, the fact that it survived throughout these years and it has become the classic, uh, re- renowned for what it, you know, as a classic is extraordinary. Um, and you know, I think it was canceled at Rockefeller Center. they didn't. They the movie theater it there. It may they,
1: be. I have to look that up. Well, her, her, well of course, they, they 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 were prevented from uh, prohibited from advertising at Hearst newspapers. And
3: then Nelson Rockefeller, a few years later, while they're in post production on um, Magnificent Am- Ambersons, mm-hmm. sends uh, Orson Welles out of the country. To South America to do a film to um, try to build an alliance with South America, World War II, etc. And while he's out of uh, out of uh, town, uh, they recut Magnificent Ambersons.
1: Yeah, it's a disgrace. Yeah, but, you know, you know, the fil- the film is still good in spite of the of of it being taken away from him. But it leaves you wondering what it would have been.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Did you ever meet him in your travels before he left us, Tim?
3: No, I, I, I never yeah. did.
1: Well, I love the actor you cast, though, Angus McFadden. Angus
3: McFadden. Is really fun. John Cusack, John, Joan Cusack are in that movie, too.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, It's and, a terrific movie. I want to urge our listeners to to get their hands on it. Bob Roberts, by the way, not easy to find. I had to buy a DVD of it. Are there, there are there music rights with that one?
3: No, nope. it's just, uh, I'm trying to figure it out myself.
1: hard to get.
2: And another odd and sometimes disturbing film you made was Jacob's Ladder.
1: Love it. Yes.
3: Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, that was that was the first time I was kind of the the star of a movie, like the central figure of the movie. And um, I remember shooting it was very difficult. Um, I think Adrian Lyme picked every hellish location in New York city for that movie. And, you know, there was nothing pretty about that.
1: Abandoned subway stations.
3: Yeah. But also just the, you know, the dirtiest dirt holes, you know, it was just always, there was always some horrible, uh, (laughs) feeling on the set. Um, and you know, the guy being just tortured by demons all the time, it, it took a toll that movie.
1: It's a, it's a, you know, it's not really, people don't really think of it as a horror film, but it is a horror film. It is. Yeah. And so and is
3: Bob Roberts in, in a way. Talk,
1: so is Bob <laughs> Roberts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I just will talk quickly about, about uh, Bob Roberts uh, and uh, uh, the great Gore Vidal, who, who's such an important part of that film. Yes. Yes. So I, I had the pleasure. I know you knew him very well. I had the pleasure to spend a couple of days with him uh while I was working on a talk show days I will never forget
3: what a wickedly funny man
1: oh man and he and he brings something to that picture i mean there's so much, it has so much going for it but he brings a certain kind of gravitas
3: i was very fortunate that he agreed to do it uh, he he lifted it up um and you know there's one scene in particular that wasn't on the schedule um and i i i talked to the production designer richard Hoover, and i said listen uh i'm going to sneak a scene in tomorrow i need a set uh i need a his office in in the senate i just need a desk and uh a background and i'm going to let gore go and um uh, at this point we're you know really tight budget uh we had producers hovering i'm a first time filmmaker and uh i i figured out an hour that i could sneak in just gore and i said to gore i asked him first if he would do it and he said of course and i said listen i all i want i'm going to talk to you off camera Uh, i'm going to ask you've just been defeated by bob roberts and i want you to just open up the vault be as completely honest as you will about american politics and 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 what your experience as an ex-senator would have been and he it was genius you know what he did uh, and, uh, you know, I became friends with him and, uh, saw him throughout his life. And, uh, he did a few events with us at the actors gang. And, uh, I, uh, you know, was a, a, a drinking partner with him at mm-hmm. times. And, um, yeah, a, a, a really, um, you know, I think we're missing this, this kind of person in our, uh, in our lives now, uh. Uh, someone that is intelligent and, uh, unafraid of, of saying certain truths about who we are and what is happening right now. Gore used to do this thing in January all the time, his own state of the union. He would do it, uh, I think, uh, right after the, the presidential state of the union. And it was always just a, an amazing, um, uh, insight into, into what wasn't said at the, at the state of the union, uh, I admire people like this. I admire people that have that kind of courage to speak truth to power.
1: Of course, he was someone to admire and 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 I guess he he brought personal experience to that because people forgot that he'd run for Congress. And he was in that class, and you know, he was, in he that was out
3: of that class. He was on the Senate floor when he was a child. Yes, very reading, much so. Uh, reading what uh, he was with his grandfather, who was a senator, who was blind. And so uh, Gore read him uh, anything he needed to, to, to be reading on the Senate floor.
1: Mm-hmm. I just have a, a question from a listener for you, Tim Gilbert. You'll appreciate this one. Jonathan Sloman from the UK wants to talk about Eric the Viking what was it like working with two pythons but more importantly uh, he says on a on an allegedly chaotic shoot in malta uh he wants to know about mickey rooney <laughs> 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 any anything you can share about mickey rooney mickey
3: rooney it, played in, my grandfather in this show sweet movie. spot um Another, you know, one, another example of one of those legendary, yeah. uh, guys that built show that, business. Yeah. The guys that built show business, I had utmost respect for him and he was lovely to me. He was very supportive and I ran into him a couple more times, uh, down the road and he was always very sweet, um, to work with the pythons. Oh my God. But <laughs> <you're,
1: laughs> you were, you water. were turning down parts. Like after you'd done bull Durham, you were getting a lot of these kind of lunkhead parts, And you you wanted to because you consider yourself a character actor who wants new challenges. You decided to go in a new direction.
3: Yes, uh, um, make a hard turn. Well, listen, when you were a child, whose entire comedic references were, you know, George Carlin and uh, Monty Python, uh, sure, and and Terry Jones calls you up and wants you to come do a movie for him. uh, I don't see how you say no. I mean, it was. What a pleasure! Um, what a genius that guy was. Oh, uh, yeah, we he just, just passed we last just year. Just
1: lost and, him. Yeah, big loss.
3: And uh, um, you know, uh, John Cleese then in that movie as well. Yeah, got to uh, hang out with him a bit. Um, they were heroes of mine. You know, this is one of the I, I've had such a blessed life. I've I've been able to meet and and be seen by people that. Uh, growing up, I, I held in such high esteem and, uh, you know, not only in, in, in movies, but also in music, um, the musicians I've met and, uh, in social movements as well, you know, Mm -hmm. being able to have lunch with Nelson Mandela and, uh, you know, there's something I was talking to, uh, a friend of mine about this and, you know, I was talking about Jackson Brown at the time, you know, who has been a friend for many years. And he had come to see a, a, a play I'd written that had music in it. And after the, after the show, he came up to me and said, um, God, these, these songs are really great. You wrote those, right? I said, yeah, I did. He said, they're really great and i and I, as i was telling my friend i started to cry and I, I said why do you think i'm crying right now he says because because you were seen you were you was uh, this is you were validated by by uh, by someone who you hold in such great respect and it, it's like your father saying good job son you know and um and w- w- one of the things i was able to say to jackson in the moment that he said that was I, I? I wouldn't have. I would never have been able to write anything without having listened to "For Every Man" and "Late for the Sky" over and over again when I was a young man. Oh, how nice! So those songs just resonated in my life. Uh,
1: I think here come those for, tears again.
3: Yeah, here come those tears. Like yeah. Late, "Late for the Sky" is, if you haven't heard this album out there, sure. it, if you're going through a breakup, it is the quintessential breakup album. And it might be a, the quintessential album for this point. Uh, you know, the, when we're all having these weird distractions and removals from reality, it's there's such beautiful poetry in that.
1: I do take that. those records out and listen to them, even the Zevon albums.
3: Oh my God! And he, you know, Jackson was the yes. biggest supporter of Warren yes. Zevon. Uh, um, you know, produced his first couple albums. Sure did. Yep. Jackson, by the way, is also the sweetest and most generous artist. Uh, you talk to any LA musician, uh, and they'll they'll tell you this. He, you know, he has created uh, forums and areas for people to meet each other and to yep. create together, and to and and has recorded and produced um, artists before they were known. Uh, has lifted up an entire generation of. Of uh, songwriters, uh an extraordinary, extraordinary human being.
1: We'd like to have him here. We 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 do we have musicians on the show. We had Jimmy Webb here. We had Peter Asher and Tommy James and, mm-hmm. and, and some other wonderful people. We'd love to have Jackson Brown.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast, but first a word from our sponsor. We've shown restraint for this uh far. But now we have to ask you about Howard the Duck. Well, how,
1: specifically, Tim, I understand that there's there's video footage someplace that exists. Yes, yes. Of you? A home, homemade yes. video that you oh
3: took? Oh, my God. See, I have to work out the legalities of this. But um, I I was so bored on that. Set it was took so long it was it was it was it was it, was, it took so long. Um, okay, so I had a video camera and I just I just bought it and so I made a movie uh, Howard the Duck uh, of based on my uh, this I, I you know essentially what happens is a very short movie it's like five minutes long, but I got all these different actors that were in it to be in it with me. Um, including Howard the Duck, and um, the premise of it is that um, everybody hates me on the set, and uh, and including the first AD who yells at me first thing in the morning, saying I don't deserve a breakfast sandwich, and you know, fuck you asshole, get into makeup, you fucking asshole, you know, and so I'm like, what, what, what? i um, so eventually. The first day, he kicks me out of my own trailer. He says, you can't use that anymore. We, we we have a day player coming in that wants to use it, so fuck off, right? You can use the, the honey wagon, the the bathroom. That's your trailer for today. So I'm sitting in the bathroom, and I'm, like, crying, right? And uh, the door opens, and it's Howard the Duck. And he says, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Kicks me out of the bathroom trailer I had. So, (laughs) and he just goes on to this kind of like weird, like uh, kind of uh, how I guess my subconscious was feeling at the time of like, what am I doing here? Uh, You know, this is, it, it was, it was strange. First of all, there was a lot of money being spent, but walking onto the set the first day, I knew we were in trouble.
1: Oh, you knew there was something wrong with the duck.
3: It was too cute. Right. Right I you know, I'd done my research, I'd read the
1: comics. Steve Gerber, the great Steve Gerber.
3: And I was like, Oh my God, they should dirty those feathers up a bit. And and then they had this 12-year-old kid that was inside the suit and he was (laughs) and he was he was whining all the time and he was (laughs) leaning up against things. The poor kid. I mean, I I feel for him. They shouldn't have put a 12 year old in that thing. He just, it just was too weird to be like, you know, you know, you're the, you're the duck. Right. And, and they had, so they had, it was all like uh, coordinated with, you know, electronics, they would, how it would move and stuff. So essentially the person in the, in the suit just had to create the physicality of the walk and the 12 year old, it, you know, I, 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 wherever he is right now, kid, uh, you know, the, you got <laughs> you got shafted. that they should not have treated you like that. You know, you should probably think about a lawsuit, by the way. I'm just in just saying
1: <laughs> anyway, the statute of There was another
3: guy named Ed that came in and, and when uh, uh, he was a man and uh, he, he was in the suit uh, after after that. And he was quite good. But it was the puppet itself. I just felt was it was it was kind of in the script as well. I'm not sure they knew whether they were appealing to a uh, an adult audience or a ch- children's audience. I mean, there's little duck little duck condoms there, and I'm like, that's weird. Yeah, it's, it's a dude.
1: it's a weird it's a it's a pardon the pun a strange animal. Yeah, yeah. But it
3: is the first Marvel movie. I don't know if you're aware of yes. that. Um, <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. <laughs>
3: uh, but um yes, and then it was I guess it won some raspberry awards and stuff. And the,
1: the movie I like from from uh from your early career is is Tony Bill's Five Corners. Oh yeah. Thank which you not know. a lot of people know about either. Yeah, Jody Foster yeah, and to Really good picture.
2: If I if I could bring up a movie I brought up that I'm quite proud of, uh Funky Monkey was a movie I was in that they had a monkey suit with an angry <laughs> an angry drunken french midget uh, <laughs> <sitting> <laughs> a oh shit no monkey shoot my god
1: there you go that does howard the duck one better <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs>
3: it, it, <laughs> Yeah. i i am so um grateful to have survived the the one of the worst bombs of all time <laughs> <laughs> you know by the way it was a no-brainer okay taking the ed saying a yes on that you know george lucas was the producer of, this of course He's done the three star wars and it was like okay come on let's go you know let's let's do it and then that first day it was a, that duck and then it was when i was supposed to work for three months it went up being six months i was there long after all the other actors were there doing for about six weeks, shooting that ultralight sequence at the end. I got to know Sausalito uh, very well. I
1: personally think you classed that movie up, Tim.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But you mentioned Five Corners. Five Corners is the reason I was able to uh, overcome that Howard the Duck thing, because my agents could say, yeah, I know, but there's this other movie. You know, you should check that out before you, you know, Put him down, that the the trash heap of history, you know. And uh, so I, I was really grateful to Tony Bill for giving me that shot. Good you know? movie,
1: good filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. Cradle will rock and uh, and Five Corners are two movies that we want. You know, people believe it or not, Tim, they take our recommendations seriously.
3: Really? Well, I've got a couple others.
1: Yeah, <laughs> let's let's hear them.
3: I love this movie called Secret Life of Words that Isabel Cazette made. uh, And uh, another movie called Code 46 that Michael Mm -hmm. Winterbottom made. Both movies I did after I won the Oscar uh, that uh, didn't get seen by large audiences and they're still out there. So if you happen to be restless in this COVID time and want to see a couple beautiful romances. Okay. Uh, those are, those are
1: code 46 and the secret life of words. And I will also recommend, uh, thanks for sharing.
3: Oh, thank you for
1: sharing. With you and Ruffalo and, and, and Gwyneth Paltrow, which was also good and possibly (laughs) mismarketed.
3: It's, it's, uh, I get notes about that, uh, from time to time. It's a very good movie. If you've ever known anyone that has an addiction, uh, it's a very helpful movie.
1: Like Gilbert. (laughs) Yeah. Gilbert, you have a sex addiction.
2: Yeah, that that and crystal meth.
3: <laughs> well, you know, just try not to do them at the same time.
1: We'll talk. We'll talk about Bobo before we again before we 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 let you get out of here, Tim. And I also want to ask about the project you did with your son Jack, of VHS. Oh, thank you. For- which you guys, you guys are so ambitious to have actually shot on VHS and Beta. That's my son. That's oh, son. That was your son's doing.
3: Yeah. Um, uh, I, I had the conversation with him about, are you sure you don't want it? He said, no dad, we're doing it with old cameras. We're going to put actual video cassettes in the cameras and we're going to do the movie that way. And, uh, it's a, I think it's a genius movie. I'm so proud of him. Uh, it's on Hulu. Uh, you can see it on Hulu. It's, um, and it's, by the way, we went down to this au- festival down in Austin and, uh, it started getting these incredible reviews. And uh, you know, comparing him to Cronenberg and uh, wow. you know David Lynch, and and I, I'm so proud of him. He you know he had a vision uh, of doing this movie. Of basically, the premise of it is that uh, it's like a found video cassette from the '80s. And what you realize is, as as the film progresses, it's a kid that has gotten a uh, camera for Christmas, and he's taping over his parents' wedding video but he's taping various things with his friend, but he's also discovered late night cable access TV. And so it's, it's like a, a series of sketches, but it's tied together by this beautiful emotional thread of, of this kid and, and the, and and his parents going through some rough times in their marriage. And um, there's, it's, it's moving. It's funny as fuck. It's, it's just, it's, He's, you know, I'm. He's gonna make some great noise.
1: I, I was a fan of the project you guys did. I'm trying to think, of, remember the name of it? The project you guys did for Funny or Die about the DJs.
3: Oh yeah, um, ultimate, 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 ultimate. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. He's. Uh, what was
1: the DJ's name? Sparkle.
3: DJ uh, Sparkle, eight-year-old prodigy. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that was
1: smart. That was your you, your your son is a satirist.
3: Yeah, he's he's very talented you know, he, he got a bunch of friends together. He went to USC film school and he got, uh, he, instead of doing the final project, you know, he said, I want to graduate a semester early and do my own thing. And so I gave him a little money and he did a short film on this DJ sparkle. And I said, you, it, you know, listen, that's really funny. If you, if you want to, she's really talented. If you, you should, you should write a longer form on this. Uh, and within a month, he had a, a full length script. And I said, well, let's, I read it. It's very funny. He had a di- different characters, this kind of DJ competition called ultimate yep, ultimate. Yep. And, um, it's very good. I, I said, we should do this. And he says, what's my budget. And I said, well, what you saved me by graduating early from USC and we'll throw in a little extra money on that. And he got his friends together and made it. And within a year, uh, comedy central had bought it to say, to, uh, for a pilot, he was being paid and he was, you know, and they didn't pick it up, but, uh, all the money was made back. And, uh, and mm-hmm. so when it came down to the next thing he wanted to do, I, I was his executive producer and I was like, look, okay, yeah, let's do this. You know, he's, I, I I'm, uh, I'm really uh, excited to see what he's going to come up with in the coming years.
1: He's good, super for, good for him. And ni- nice to see that the talent. And my other son's
3: a genius musician.
1: He's got he a band
3: called Pow Pow Family Band that is so good. Pow so Pow he,
1: Family Band.
3: Yeah. So good.
1: Gen- generations of talented musicians and we should point out those great songs in Bob Roberts were written by you and your brother David and also the 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 the, the music and the songs in Bobo Supreme which are great thank you um i think Bobo is strength is my favorite <laughs> <laughs> but there but th- there are so many great ones and i would love to hear the ones you couldn't do
3: <laughs> <laughs> well there were There's actually one that I had to rewrite because I was so offended by it. Uh, (laughs) But there's a a song called Black People Love Me. Yes, I I heard that. Which is Babo's attempt to try to get Black voters to vote for him. Uh, And so he's hired a couple backup singers. And so the way I rewrote it was that the backup singers, instead of writing the songs, that the original lyrics that I wrote, I wrote new lyrics so that they're singing what they want to basically calling him out and so the the song gets stopped because babo hears what they have just said about him and is angry about that and they try it again they say something even worse so Mm
1: -hmm.
3: i I needed to empower the the patents in that scene and then there's another song called uh, wheat from the chaff that uh, i I didn't want to hear the whole whole lyrics of so uh, after a verse and a chorus Baba gets so angry at the clarinet player that he tasers him, uh, and uh, and 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 walks out furious because he played a B flat where you shouldn't. Have. Um, it was so much fun doing that podcast, man. I it was can like imagine. you know,
1: it's it's. What was the line? Throw some more shit in the frying pan. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the <laughs> I throw
3: would, more the racist shit. in More the, racist shit. Uh, if
1: I was talking to Pat Oswalt about it, because he's, he's he's in not, that scene.
3: Yeah, he's no man. He he's got no fucking plan, just throwing racist
1: shit yeah. into the frying pan. It's, it's really great. It's 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 satire, and as you say, satire needs to go too far sometimes.
3: Or, it does. It needs this, to be rude. It yeah. needs to, you need to be dangerous with it. It's it, it, it can't be imitation, it can't be parody, uh and and you know, making fun of, you know, the the, the president's family and so I have no interest in doing this. Of course. That. I, I wanted to get at the core of of what this dysfunction is. What what is this child? What is the id? What is the unbridled id inside that is that is uh, refusing to accept responsibility for the, you know the mess that's been created? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like a child. You know, I, I didn't make that mess. You know, I I didn't do it. It's like a two year old.
1: No responsibility.
3: And and so I I tried to tap into that. There's a character called Ubu the King. Uh, that I played when I was in my 20s, that uh, that's where I wrote it from that perspective. This um, the, In the play, by the way, the first performance of which in the early part of the 19th, 20th century, the Parisian audience was so incensed by this character that they... Tore up the seats of the theater and there was a riot, a full on riot in the theater. And when I read it in college, I said, I want to do that play. And it is the most outrageous, scatological, fucked up play ever. And uh, so when I was writing Babo, I was thinking about Ubu the King. This, uh, yeah, this um, basically immoral uh, person in his lust for power will do anything and say anything.
1: It's got a great cast, too. And I, in episode two, Alfre Woodard's uh, speech, where she's basically uh, uh, filibustering, where she's just hammering him. Yeah. It's cathartic to listen to. It was wonderful. It's got a great cast. As we said, our, our friend Patton Oswalt is in it. The great Jack Black. uh, uh, so many funny people. Isla Fisher. Isla Fisher. Yeah. Yeah, Ray Wise. uh, We love Ray Wise. Just want to ask you about this list of character actors quickly, Gilbert, you'll groove to this because, you know, Tim, for you to consider yourself a character actor, I, I mean, this, this, this wonderful list of, of character actors, uh, that, that you worked with, I mean, not only Ray Wise and, and, and Charles Durning, uh, but, you know, people like Barnard Hughes, who, who uh, I think that was his last part in Cradle Will Rock, mm-hmm. the great James Whitmore. I mean, you know, people like Fred Ward and Margot Martindale and, and, and uh, Gilbert mentioned Lou Jacoby and Cherry Jones and Robert Prosky and, and Vanessa Redgrave and our friend Danny Aiello, who's in Jacob's Ladder. These people are treasures.
3: And Ted Levine. Ted who, Levine, who, it was great. Amos Supreme. Great, love Ted Steve Levine. These yeah. are
1: these are uh, we call I guess we call them workmanlike actors.
3: These and are the backbone, we, and we treasure you know? them. And um, we should we should be uh, sending love to them because it's a tough time uh, to get through this uh, period. Um, uh, those that are still with us, that, that uh, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but SAG is. Just, you know,
1: yes, I've cancel health that.
3: insurance for a bunch of people, Very and, distressing. You know, those that don't know, in order to get health insurance in our industry, you have to work, right? And you have to have a certain amount of work. And during COVID, our fucking union has canceled. You know, you can't work, so you can't qualify. And you'd think there'd be some kind of emergency fund to take care of these character actors, uh, particularly people of a certain age in this time. To get us all through this, you know, I'm fine, but you know, there's so many people, friends of mine, uh, that I've grown up with, that are having their insurance canceled. It's
1: It's shame, distressing. Judd Apatow tweeted about uh, Norman Lloyd, who's 105, 106. Wow. I I mean, losing his losing his fucking health insurance. I mean, it's just pretty, pretty disgraceful. Uh, quickly, quickly before you go, Tim, and we could talk to you for hours. We just Gilbert and I are, are uh, not unlike everybody else who loves Shawshank. Um, why, why do you think that it's? I maybe the answers are obvious, but you met Nelson Mandela. He wanted to talk about Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> what? Why do you think this movie um, endures the way it endures and has affected so many people all over the globe? And and you you seemingly can't go a day without somebody bringing it up.
3: I don't mind anyone bringing it up because it's been such a profound, um, uh, influence on my life. Um, yeah, people, it's interesting, you know, um, when people do stop me or talk about it or ask about it, Mm -hmm. there's always some other story that's associated with it for them. Um, I've heard everything from it, it made me realize that, uh, it made me realize something about myself that I needed to change the way I was living. Uh, I quit my job after I saw it. Um, I got out of a bad relationship because I saw it, uh, it helped me through the most difficult emotional period of my life. It lifted me up when there was no one there for me. You know, it's, it's, it's it's deep. It's deep. And, uh, I, I feel honored to be part of that. And, um, I, I feel honored to be part of a movie that can serve that function for people, uh, that, that can do something for people's souls. Uh, and, uh, it, it's, you know, it it's does. extraordinary what happened because it wasn't a big success when it came out and no. it just became, it got this life of its own and it's become the this is a beloved movie, uh, but but not just in the, like I like that movie, but in this m- this made m- made me feel something I, uh, that really profoundly changed me.
1: Well, when a, when when art can lift people like that, when 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 a piece of art, I mean, I'm, my mind goes to the scene where you you lock yourself in the uh, in the office and put the and put the uh, the opera record on. When 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 a movie, when a piece of art can can elevate and can, can inspire people a, a, around the world. It's a beautiful thing, and a rare thing.
0: Andy? Andy? I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't wanna know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free.
3: And yes, and that piece of music is such a good choice for it, too, you know that it's that Mozart it's just it's, yeah, I mean it's uh it's like that monkey movie that Gilbert was talking just about
1: like <laughs> <it>. <laughs> See, there's a pro Gilbert, a guy that knows how to do a callback) <laughs> You know, we've had a lot of actors on the show. This is a question about Gilbert, Tim. We've had Richard Kind and Bob Balaban and Griffin Dunn and 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 uh, uh, Joe, Joey Pants was here and uh, just uh, Dan, Danny Aiello and, and a million, Joe Mantegna. We'll, we want to ask you what we asked them. Could you see Gilbert in a dramatic part? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Comedians are, uh, are, are great dramatic actors. All the ones that I've seen.
1: What do you think, Gil?
2: Well, if he says so, I'll go along with it.
1: What did Alan Arkin
2: say that he could see you
1: doing? Was it Lear?
2: Uh, yeah, or someone.
1: So oh, I he forget- said. Oh, he said he could see you doing um, Willie Loman. Willie Loman. Hmm, I can see that.
2: And my other two favorites was that Dick Van Dyke said I would have made a great buddy. In, uh, like oh, on the, the
1: Van Dyke show.
2: On the Van Dyke show, and uh, what? Oh, geez. Uh, was it Adam West? Adam West. Adam West said, "I would have been a great penguin." <laughs> <laughs> so those were my two proudest moments. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: I could, I could see it was like a, like a, like in a, like a, like a psychopath. <laughs> You uh, know, <laughs> like a
0: psychopath, like
3: <laughs> like, a, like one of those like murder movies, you know. Like, <laughs> and, and you come on, you just uh, just smiling all the time, just like
1: <laughs> like like the character in M, like the uh, or or yeah, uh, the Peter Laurie character Lurie? in M, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or Harry Roach Jr. Gilbert Al- Allen's part in Wait Until Dark.
2: Oh my god, yeah. You
1: you could play that kind of psychopath. Or what's the one Richard Widmark where he pushes the old lady down the stairs? Oh Kiss of Death?
3: Oh yeah. What is that? Kiss of Death. Kiss of Death, yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: I could see you uh I would like to see you sing an opera, actually. <laughs> I'd like to see- <laughs> I I would oh, I pay love- good money for that. Man. <laughs>
1: We want to thank some people, Tim, who helped get you here, and that is Jason Smith and Brian Baldinger, who are also involved with Bobo Supreme, our our friends at Starburns Audio. Uh, Props to Lisa Rudin, too, they wanted to say. And thank you to uh, Lauren Schwartz, uh, all the people who helped deliver our guests, uh, we we are grateful to. Uh, And congratulations on all the wonderful work with the Actors Gang and the Prison Project. It's important work that you're doing.
3: Thank you. Um, it's filled my life in, in an extraordinary way. Uh, last 14 years, uh, has really put perspective on everything for me. Uh, when you go in inside and you are able to see the courage it takes for these, uh, incarcerated men and women to, to, um, leave uh, their past behind and, and embrace a new reality and, uh, have the courage to go up and, Pretend to be characters and express emotions that they haven't expressed for years, um, that have been locked inside them.
1: Yeah, and to imagine. see that
3: liberation and to see that beauty come out—it's—it's it's extraordinary. It makes everything possible.
1: And the actors' gang, yes, we will. And the actors' gang will be uh, will be up and running again and doing good things all over the world once this accursed uh, pandemic lifts.
3: You bet we will. We're surviving. We're we're continuing our programs in prison. We're continuing our education programs, actually expanding our educa- ed- education programs via uh, this new medium of teaching. And uh, we've been doing some workshops as well to develop new pieces. And so whenever we can assemble in a room together, we will, and uh, we will get through this and um, we'll you. be better for it. And the kinds of material we'll be presenting will be, uh, relevant to this time and and will resonate with our audiences i promise
1: you have done wonderful work for, and made a difference in a lot of people's lives so congratulations yeah. Bobo Supreme patreon.com slash tim robbins presents is how they can get it
3: please 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 five said- epi- five
1: episodes yeah. hey, wait we will, all need a good laugh right? yes i was going to ask you about that you saying humor was essential to survival
3: Absolutely, man. This is what we miss the most, isn't it? The, the ability to assemble, uh, whether it's in a restaurant or a movie theater or a live theater or a concert hall, be able to stand with other people, could be strangers, and tr- create a temporary community around the emotions that are being expressed in those places and share a collective anger or a collective fear, or yep. to laugh together or to weep together. This is something that is, is essential. For the human condition, and it's something that's been kept from us, and and uh, it's it's uh, my hope that uh, Baba Supreme can can kind of create a a, a weird virtual community uh, where you can go someplace and laugh together at something and gather strength from that.
1: That's it's a hoot, and it's 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 a lot of actors and friends having fun, and that 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 fun comes across.
3: And like I said, man, it, you know, it, we need to laugh. It's so important right now. Will
1: you it's, do more than five? And will you direct another comedy at some point? I know you directed an episode of The Brink and and some other things. Will you direct another feature comedy?
3: I would love to. I would love to. And uh, I I have many uh, ideas about that and scripts. But it's just about getting uh, someone to give me the keys to the car.
4: Okay. And, and something- I won't crash
3: it. I swear.
2: Something that we've discussed on this show a lot, and that is also, I mean, it's I also, uh, you know, I've seen the films where you're laughing all at the same part, or when the hero shoots the bad guy and you're all cheering. Uh, But do you think movies, movie theaters have any future?
3: I don't know. I do know that yeah, uh, this is going to be a significant cultural shift Yeah, uh, when we come out of this. Uh, this moment in particular, uh, I think people are starting to make decisions about what that will be. I would encourage those people that hold that kind of power to really assess the situation. I think we're in a moment like it was in the early 70s when Hollywood was making all these irrelevant movies and The streets were filled with strife and riots and protests against the Vietnam War. And Hollywood was putting out musicals like Thoroughly Modern Millie, and no one was going to see them. And Hollywood was blaming it on television, you know. But uh, it wasn't television. It was that they were making irrelevancies. And what happened was Dennis Hopper made this movie called Easy Rider. It was a huge hit. And all the Hollywood studios realized there is an audience still out there. And they started hiring all these hippie filmmakers. And that's how we got Robert Altman. That's how we got Hal Ashby and Brian De Palma and Alan Pakula, Robert and Martin, Benton, Martin Scorsese. Right, all of them. You know, the, Coppola. All of these Coppola. Yeah. Yeah, just genius moment in American film. It all came out of not knowing, you know, and that's where I think we are right now. I don't think people really know what audiences want. I think we got a little glimpse of it, though. I think we saw the success of Parasite. And we saw the Academy hmm. say to the industry, we're going to give this best picture, best foreign picture, best director, and best screenplay. Make okay. more films like this. Wow. Right?
1: Wow, I hadn't given that any thought. Absolutely. It was the
3: Academy sending a huge message Makes sense to the industry. And what was that movie about? It wasn't about superheroes or rich people or... It
1: wasn't escapism at all. (laughs) It was about
3: us. It was about the income disparity that was happening. It was about poor people. Just like some of those movies in the 30s that were about poor people. People that wanted to see stories that reflected their lives and not fantasize.
1: Well, I hope hope you're right. It would be a lovely... uh, uh, outcome it would be a lovely silver lining to this whole pandemic if 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 that were true and and we did return to those glory years
3: i'm holding out hope for that and um you know i i hope that people might be able to see that uh, I, have, I have a feeling they're just going to try to Say, hey, you know, look over here. That didn't happen. Just uh, here's your superhero movie again. You know, don't worry about it. Remember how the fun this used to be? Hey, everybody! <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all okay. COVID didn't happen. Here's some more movies. You know, it,
1: it, uh, I, it'll have. I don't to know happen. if we're gonna buy it, but it'll have to happen differently because that studio system doesn't exist anymore, as you well know. So it, it, if if they do turn the keys over to the artists, as they did as the studios did in the seventies, it'll have to happen differently. Oh, but
2: here's, I hope so. I hope here's so Here's a question. Whenever I, we have a guest who's directed, I always like, how do you know you're, uh, that the director you're doing something with is a bad director?
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's put you in a monkey film. That's how, yeah. that's how you do <laughs>
4: <laughs>
0: um,
3: you kind of know right away. Uh, I had an experience recently. It, you know, when a person came up to me on the set of this thing I was doing and said, "Here's what you're doing in this scene," and I, I was like, "Oh boy!" Wow!
1: <laughs> you, <just, laughs>
3: <laughs> you just said the wrong. Thing. I didn't say this out loud. I, I didn't say it out loud. Wow. I just said, oh god! No. Um, it's a shame that some people, some directors are just visual and, and don't really know what an actor goes through. Uh, I've found that some of the best directors I've worked with are people that either love actors or, or have been actors themselves. Um, there's some people that actually just don't fucking like actors, you know, they shouldn't be working, but you know, they, they bring it in on time and under budget and, you get another chance. So. You
1: just described Gilbert's whole movie career. <laughs>
3: <laughs> There's time, though, Gilbert. You know, the, 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 first, won- m- the first $100 million box office filmed opera
4: <laughs>
0: of,
3: of Waiting for Godot it's starring Gilbert Gottfried.
1: Waiting for Gilbert. Gilbert, let this man get on with his day. Tim, this was great thanks so much for having me you guys oh you fun. were great you're so so generous
2: okay this is my been pleasure Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and we've been talking to a man who when he was ten years old went on a date with a priest <laughs> 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 thank you, Tim Robbins. <laughs> and Tim, if we ever
1: meet up, we're going to talk about Bob Murphy and Lindsay Nelson, and uh, uh, what about Ralph Kiner, and Ralph Kiner, and Brian Gold, and and the si- the sign guy, and all those great uh, all those great Met memories. Oh, I, man, yeah, I, Bur-
3: I was there when they won it. In 19- I
1: know you were. I saw the uh, documentary. Sixteenth,
3: my birthday. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, good good stuff. And happy belated birthday.
3: Thank you, and go Dodgers.
1: Go Dodgers. <laughs> All right, Bobo Supreme, folks, and find Cradle Will Rock and Bob Roberts and Five Corners and The Brink and all kinds of wonderful things and The Secret Life of Words and all of these wonderful projects that Tim is involved with. I'll, I'll, right. see, I'll see I'll you on The View again if we ever get back there.
3: <laughs> okay. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Thanks pal. pal. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Darrell.
2: Count it in, Rudolph. Yes, sir, Mr. President. One, two, three, four.
4: Everybody's telling lies but me Everybody's making up their own reality Everyone that hates me is unable to see That Bobo is love, Bobo is love Everybody is in love with war Everyone that fights for me knows what they're fighting for Bobo is shouted out from shore to shining shore that Bobo is peace, Bobo is peace. It's everybody's right to be a slave, to work from morn to midnight till you meet an early grave. The worker and the farmer in the home of the brave cry, Bobo is freedom, Bobo is freedom. Everybody's right to be dumb. The less you know, the less you care, the less to overcome. Come, Bobboist, it is the time to beat the fucking drum, cause Bobbo is strength. Bob-o-ist strength.